My name's uh, Pastor Eric. I'm the lead pastor of the story. I'm not just the lead pastor of the story. I am also a golf champion. I just wanted to, I don't talk about this that often, um, but it's just, I try to be humble. Um, but, you know, it's just, it's part of my testimony now. Uh, this is my latest uh, trophy. I uh, took it, well, my only trophy, but my latest one as well. I took it home from the Dominican Republic uh, earlier this month. Um, uh, a few friends from the story and I, um, Matt and Brad and William and I, um, we went to the Dominican Republic representing the Story Church at the annual Fred Funk Invitational Tournament. You golf nerds in the room just perked up. Yeah, that Fred Funk, that's right. He played with us and gave me a little personal one-on-one -on -one lesson and because, uh, you know, he thought we were peers based on how I was playing and all that. And, um, <laughs> and uh, it was a, a scramble. Uh, it was a charity event in um, support of Go Ministries, our partner um, ministry there on, on the island, the Dominican Republic. And, and so they're doing incredible work. I'm so stoked about the work that they're doing, the chance we got to support them um, in that. But um, we won first place by a lot, is what I wanted to tell you today. And um, <clears throat> it wasn't close. But because it's Sunday and we're in the Lord's house and all that, I'll, I'll, I just feel the need to be totally honest about what happened and what didn't happen. Um, because although I'm technically a golf champion, I am pathetic at golf. Like, I am not exaggerating. I am worse at golf than I've ever been at any sport in my life. And I've tried a lot of sports. I'm not super athletic, but I've always been a little athletic, I guess. But I've never been as bad at a sport as I am at golf. I don't know why. My friend Matt said it's probably because I only play about once every four or five years. I, that's his theory. I don't know. I don't know if I buy it or not. But I just, it's not coming together for me. Um, and it was, I had my, my moments there um, in the DR. Uh, when tournament organizers reached out to me in the weeks before the event, they asked me um, for some information, t-shirt size and all this other stuff, but they asked me for my handicap. And I know so little about golf. I didn't even really know what they wanted to know. I thought it was a personal question. I was like, <laughs> I, my ankle hurts sometimes and I've got lactose intolerance or whatever. I don't know, what are you asking? And then I, was, I figured it out, and they texted me back. They were like, we need your golf handicap. And so I Googled how to calculate a handicap, and uh, I came up with the number I thought was the right number. I texted it to Juan from the Dominican Republic. I said, Juan, my handicap is 45, is what I told him. And um, he texted back immediately, and all he said was, LOL. And that, that was the end of our communication. It was it until I got there and I learned that he thought I was joking because golf people know that there's no such thing as a 45 handicap. Like the biggest handicap they'll allow any golfer to claim is 36. Two strokes a hole, 18 holes, 36. But I, my handicap technically is 45, but I, I, don't, I don't know golf well enough. I do know math. I do know math and I figured what that meant was I, my golf game is 25% worse than they allow any golfer to be, which hurt a little. That one stung, but I got over it. I took my handicap out to the links, and uh, my handicap was really all I contributed to my team. Um, that works in your favor as a, as a foursome, and it worked in ours a little bit. Mostly it's because of uh, Brad and Matt and William that I am officially a golf champion, and no one will ever be able to take that away from me, you guys. And so... 
you're champions too, okay? It was the stories team. So that's, that's uh, your trophy as well, but it's at my house, and that's where it will stay. All right? So, <laughs> so let's get to the reason we're all here today. I'll stop bragging, all right? Let's get to today's message. This is part uh, 21 of 26 in our series of messages. The series is called Acts of the Apostles, How a Handful of Nobodies Became a Movement for Everybody. And um, we're almost there, you guys. I think we'll be done uh, with the series around uh, Palm Sunday. And so this has been a great journey. I've loved going through the book of Acts. I've never done this before as a preacher where I'm just learning so many things as we go. So this is a fun thing for me, and I hope it's been fun for you as well. Ever since about chapter 9 of Acts, we've mostly been following around this character named Paul. Paul um, was also known as Saul. He was a killer of Christians. He was a religious man who believed that it was his duty to stamp out Christianity before it became too big to stamp out. And so he persecuted Christians until Jesus you know, met him on the road to Damascus and called him to his service. And Paul became a Christian and eventually the apostle Paul and his, you know, this lore around him was born. That's what we've been seeing. Luke, the author of Acts, described Paul Throughout this book, the fifth book of the New Testament, Acts of the Apostles, describe Paul as like a machine. He's unstoppable, this guy. He just goes from place to place and preaches the gospel with the same fire and ferocity as before. Even though every place he goes, there's people that want to kill him. And he gets run out of town. He gets arrested. He gets imprisoned. He gets beaten. And he doesn't stop. He just keeps going and going like a machine would go and and he he just he preached like he lived. I mean his sermons never ended either. I was gonna share a story with you from Acts 20 about that. I'm not for the interest of time. I just want you to know if you ever think my sermons are long, Paul once preached a man to death. Like just preached him into such a deep sleep that he fell out of a window and fell to his death. All right? And then and then Paul got back in the pulpit and was like, where was I? Let's keep going. And he preached the rest of the night until dawn. I just wanted y'all to know that in case any of you ever feel like I go too long. All right? I know I'm a little long-winded. That's why we have the chairs you're in, the least comfortable chairs in the history of chairs. It's to keep you awake so no one falls out and, uh, and gets hurt. Okay? So the, 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 the passage we're going to look at today is from later in Acts 20 where we see another example of the way Paul was a man on a mission. And as we think about these things today, I want you to ask yourself, this is just between you and God. I don't need an answer. This is just for you and God to contemplate and in your prayers and in your reflection to think about. What is your life's mission? If you don't have a mission or a mission statement that defines it, why not? What are you waiting for? And, and the same would go if you're a married person if you, for your marriage. What's your marriage, the mission of your marriage, or the mission of your household, the mission of your family? What are you aiming for? And if you're not aiming at anything, how do you expect to ever get anywhere? This is just fundamental sort of 101 stuff we're talking about. But Paul was a man on a mission. We're going to see more about that mission today. Specifically, we see that Paul saw his mission as something akin to a race. Paul believed he was running the race of his life. The only race that matters. So let's uh, see an example of what we're talking about. From Acts 20, verse 17. If you want to open your Bibles or turn on your Bible apps, whatever you've got, and, um, and you've got study guides as well. Those don't have the scriptures in them, but they've got some questions and answer portions. Acts 20, verse 17. From Miletus, 
Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. Remember last week we were in chapter 19 and Paul was in Ephesus. We talked a lot about Ephesus last week, so he's moved on from Ephesus. Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived where Paul was, he said to them, you know how I've lived the whole time that I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears in the midst of severe testing by the plots, by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would, be, uh, that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. If you're looking for a default mission statement, that's a good one right there, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom, will ever see me again. This is a farewell message. And skipping down to verse 36, he continues. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. And they all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. And what grieved him most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. And they said goodbye right there. So the cool thing about Acts and what a historian Luke was is that it's pretty easy to pinpoint the exact dates that we're talking about. If you're a history buff or anything, like we're pretty clear on the, the, the timeline of events. These events we just read about took place in either 55 or 56 AD. Paul was about 50 years old at this time. Um, and, and he had spent before this two years and three months in Ephesus, that great city, where Artemis was the renowned goddess. Remember all that from last week? I know it seems like an eternity ago. He spent two years and three months there building that church up. And he knew that it was time to move on, and he was moving on from the place he'd moved on from. At this point in the story, it was time to go preach the gospel elsewhere. He wanted to get to Jerusalem before Pentecost. Paul was a man on a mission. So he also knew, as part of his mission, taking him elsewhere, that this was probably the last time he was going to see these people, before heaven anyway, He's not being morbid about this. He's not trying to bum them out. They were bummed out by the way you heard the tears. And it's important to remember the human element of these stories. These are real people who really were going to miss each other. These aren't characters in some fictional tale. These were friends, brothers and sisters in Christ. And they didn't want to not see Paul's face again. They loved him. And so they wept. But Paul was right in his instinct that you know, just like there had been people, politicians and religious leaders trying to kill him in every place that he went, eventually they would get to him and take him out. And we know that about 10 years after these events in this story, about 10 years later, Paul was in fact beheaded by the Roman emperor Nero for preaching the gospel, which was contrary to Roman values and ideals. And so they killed him. I like to imagine the Apostle Paul with all of his courage, smiling serenely as his head rested on the guillotine. Why? Because 
The fact that his head was on a guillotine meant that he had accomplished the task. He had finished the race. He had kept the faith. That's why he said to the Ephesian elders in the passage we just read, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. And finish the race, right? So I don't think Paul was being um, melodramatic here. I don't think he's being melancholic. I don't think Paul thought his life was worthless. He said it, it, it seems worthless to me. He didn't say it's worthless to God or to the kingdom of God. He said, in a way, he said, in light of who God is and the revelation of God we've experienced in Jesus Christ, my life might as well be worthless because it matters so little compared to the glory of God. And so serving myself is so petty compared to serving God. That's the, that's the real contrast he's setting up here. He's not saying he's depressed and wants to die. He's just saying there's nothing like serving God. And I can attest to this. There is nothing on earth like serving God. There's nothing in life as rewarding and fulfilling as serving God. And you don't have to do it as an occupation like I do to understand this. In fact, sometimes it's better if you don't do it as an occupation. You just do it from your heart. You do it at your office. You do it at home. You're careful in every conversation to serve the Lord instead of serving yourself. That's the foot race Paul was referring to, and he referred to that analogy again and again. It was his favorite analogy. You've you probably heard preachers that have their favorite like thing, right? Their favorite sort of go-to analogy. Paul's was a foot race. He's always talking about how following Jesus, the life of a Christian is like a foot race. And he said it in 1 Corinthians. He said it in Galatians. He said it in Philippians. He said it in 2 Timothy, as we'll read a little later. He wrote about running a good race for Christ Jesus. And we don't know who wrote Hebrews. It's an anonymous book in the Bible. It's extraordinary, but it's anonymous. There's always been debates about who wrote it. A lot of people think Paul wrote it because there's a reference to a foot race in Hebrews. Hebrews 12, verse 2 says, let's run with perseverance the race marked before us. So it would fit if Paul did indeed write it. We'll know one day in heaven. We get to ask. But why running as an analogy? I mean, if you're not a runner... Running is not a fun thing to think about. I'm not a runner. I will never be a runner. I hate running. Anyone? If there's nothing chasing me, I'm like, what's the point? But runners get kind of cult-like about it. If you've ever known the running community or anyone in it, it's, it's almost as cult-like as the golfing community. You know, it's a little bit like insider, insider talk. And, and, and runners are very passionate about running. You know, I think, I think Paul probably was a runner. I don't know why else he would talk so much about running. I think only runners talk this much about running. And so my best guess that Paul was a runner. Maybe that's how he covered 20,000 miles in his life on foot. You know, he got there pretty fast, faster than the average bear. You know, it's like he's probably a runner. Um, that's my best guess. Maybe he was, if he was a golfer, he would have had a whole different metaphor. You know, I don't know. You can probably hear that sermon if you really think about what the, you probably had a golfer, a, a preacher golfer, golfer preacher, who talked about, you know, keeping it down the middle, keep it in the fairway, keep out of the hazards. You know, all the stuff that golfers say, you know, golf produces suffering and suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and 
character hope, and hope produces more golf, and, and, and we go round and round, right? You can hear it. You know what that analogy would sound like, but Paul was a runner, I think, and so he used running as his favorite go-to analogy to talk about running a good race for the Lord, and it's something that's so pervasive in Scripture, we should probably get our heads around it a little and see what it is he's saying, what he isn't saying, because we're all called to run the good race that Paul's lifting up before us. So lots of questions come up for Christians, especially new believers. And even some old believers, or long-time believers, not old, long-time believers that haven't thought this through, like about this race. There's a few questions that I think are vital to answer, lest we um, misunderstand what Paul is saying the Christian life is like. So I'm going to take us through three quick questions here. And the first one is just, how long is this race that we're running? The second one is, uh, who are we running against? And the third one is, what are we running for? What's the goal or what's the aim of this race that we're in? So first, um, let's tackle this first important question. How long is this race that we're running? Now, the race that Paul referred to and wrote about didn't begin when he was born. And I, I know this sounds academic, but it's very important. And I'll tell you why in a minute. Paul's race in Christ didn't begin when he was born. Paul's race began when Jesus, you know, blinded him on the Damascus road. And that was about the time that Paul was 30. So when Paul was 30 years old, he came to faith in Jesus, surrendered his life to Christ, and his race began. And it lasted another 30 years when Paul died at the guillotine with Nero. So I think um, what's important about this is the, the misunderstanding is so common that you're supposed to be running the right race your whole life. And if you haven't been and the Lord prompts you or you have your Damascus Road moment, if you start to feel like, I would say yes, but I see everyone else has been running a long time and I don't want to feel behind. Or if you say yes and you sort of start hanging out with Christians and you're like, I don't even know who these people are. I don't know what language they're speaking. Is Christianese a thing? What are they saying? And you can get easily discouraged because you feel like you're falling behind or you're starting from the back of the pack. Friends, this is not how it works. Paul's race didn't begin on the day that he was born or the day that he went to temple for the first time or the day that he was circumcised or the day that he first believed or professed a belief in God. His race as a Christian began the day he gave his life to Christ, and so did yours. Your race begins the day you surrender to Jesus, and it ends on the day that you die. That's sort of the parameters of the race. And so what that should absolve you of is any sense of regret, remorse, looking back. What if I had? Why didn't I? I wish I had. All those questions that trip us up on the race we should be running because we're not even looking at the path, we're looking back. Because we have all these regrets about not starting the race sooner. No, that's not the point. If anything, if you come to the race later in life, like Paul did at 30, like I did at 34, or, or like some of you have at, at a later age, if anything, God will take all those years, all those experiences, all those mistakes, and as he alone is capable of doing, he will turn all that trouble into a testimony for the race you're running today, if you let him. 
So you keep your eyes fixed on the road. As the author of Hebrews also said, we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, right? So we, we continue to put one foot in front of the other without looking back because the journey begins the moment we receive Christ. All right. Second, this sort of dovetails into the second question. When we think about life in Christ as a race, who are we racing against? Who are we racing against? I'd say there's two common misunderstandings here. The first one is that you're supposed to race against other Christians, which is silly, but we still think it. We still sort of, we we gauge how we're doing on the race compared to how other Christians around us are doing. And it's always really handy to have a Christian in your life who's not doing very well because you can feel really good about the race you're running. And, you know, if you come to faith in Christ and begin your race and you go, let's say you end up at a church that, I don't know, like doesn't take the Bible seriously and it's kind of one of those to each his own kind of churches. Like, a, I, don't, I don't want to point anybody. But if it has you, you on the door, like Unitary or whatever, like maybe you're going to feel really good. Like you're ahead of these people already. Like I'm a good runner. Like that's how it's easy to feel. But if you go to your average like East Texas Bible church, after receiving Christ and starting your race and half the seven-year-olds have half the Bible memorized, you're going to feel like a loser <laughs> because you're playing a comparison game and it's not about comparing. Your race is your race and you're not running against other Christians. Comparison, as they say, is the thief of joy. So don't compare yourself to how other Christians are doing. Run your race. Another Um, common misunderstanding, misapprehension we have about this race is that we're running a race against the devil. And he is described as our adversary, as our opponent in a way, but he is not our opponent in the sense that he's running the same race trying to beat us along this race. Think about that. That's silly. He is a hurdle at best. He's an obstacle. He's a He's a hater, a heckler in the crowd trying to get you to quit. That's all he is. Don't give him more credit than that. He's not running the same race you are. He just wants you to stop running or slow down or run the other direction. You're not running against other Christians. You're not running against the devil. You're not even running against the world. Paul mentioned his worldly opponents, but... You know, it's easy to think us against the world. That's not how it, how it should go either because worldly, secular people aren't running the race we're, we're running. You'll face a lot of opposition in the world for sure, but you're not running against them. The only answer to this question really is you're running this race in Christ against yourself. And this is another thing that I had to really think about because I'm not a runner. Runners understand this. Runners get this concept. I remember sitting down with a runner after he had run a Houston marathon. He was so proud of himself, and I was like, just settle down, bro. You know, it's like, I get it. You're in shape. I'm not, okay. (laughs) And he was so happy with himself. And I was like, congratulations. You know, what place did you get? Because that's how I think about sports. I'm just like, what place did you get in the Houston marathon? And he's like, I don't, I don't know, maybe like 198th in my division or something. I was like, bro, you shouldn't be talking about that. I wouldn't say that out loud. That's my ignorance, not his failure, because he came back and he was like, but it was my personal best. It was my personal best. He beat 
his old self at running the race. And this is absolutely the way we should look at the race we're running. You're not running against anyone else but you. In particular, you're running against, Paul would say in another letter, the old you, the old man, the old person you used to be. And you can look at it like you're running against the person you were before Christ and who you would be, where you would be on the journey without Christ. And I think about where I was on the journey before Christ opened my eyes in 2013. The trajectory that I was on, the trajectory my marriage was on, my future was not looking very bright at the time. And I can ask myself, where would I be compared to where I am but for the grace of God? Would I be where I am today? Absolutely not. Would I still be married? I'm not real sure. If I was married, would my wife like me much? I highly doubt it. She likes me now because it's Christ in me that she loves. And, and that's how he works in us. It, it, it's, it's from the inside out, he changes us. And he shows us the path that he's set before us. And so we measure ourselves not against each other and not against the world, not against the devil, but just against who we would have been without him. And then as you go further along in your journey, you can start competing against who you were yesterday as a Christian who you were a year ago as a Christian. You can start measuring how you're developing in terms of how many others you're leading to Christ, how deep you are in the word, how seriously you are about, uh, how seriously you take fasting and praying and things like that. You can start sort of looking at it that way. And that's a beautiful thing because we always want to grow and mature in faith. So that, I think, is the easiest way for us to think about who we are running against. Finally, what is the end goal of this race? What's the... What's the point, the purpose, the finish line? Well, it, it's, obvious not, it's obviously not our, our success. I hope the, hopefully that's clear, although there's sometimes some churches, some places we give people that impression that to live a good life in Christ is to have a good life. And by the world standards, it's to be monetarily blessed and comfortable. And we often will conflate a word like blessed with worldly comfort, and that's not a biblical thing to do, really. And we can easily communicate to people that the goal of the Christian life is to be rewarded in this life and to be comfortable. Biblically, that doesn't make sense at all. It doesn't add up. I mean, we can just look at Paul's statement again. I think that's why he wrote, I consider my life worth nothing to me. That's why he said it. We don't live for us anymore. And that's the beauty of it. That's the freedom of it. We're not shackled to the chains of self-absorption any longer. The chains that used to bind us and still bind so many around us. We're not about us anymore. We just want our lives to reflect Christ Jesus. Why? Well, I mean, the word Christian literally means little Christ. We're all baby Christs growing up, you know, in the faith, following Jesus Christ around until he makes us more like him. And so if we are to be like him, who is he? He's the one who surrendered himself for the sake of others and at the will of the Father. If Christ surrendered his life for others, then so will I. And I pray, so will you, because that's what it looks like to finish this race strong, is to live and surrender like Jesus. I see examples of this all the time. I pray that my life is and one day will be an example of this. 
self-sacrifice and surrender. We saw a couple of examples this week in the news. I'd like to share about one of them. It was not an easy week, was it, in the news since last Sunday when we gathered. Um, on a Sunday afternoon last week, as most of us were getting ready for the Super Bowl and stuff, um, our brothers and sisters at Lakewood Church, which if you're out of town, you don't know how close we are geographically and watching online. It's maybe as the crow flies, like a mile from here. Um, they feel like next door neighbors in a way, um, by Houston standards, certainly. We know what took place there, a disturbed woman with a long history of um, crime and mental illness. She burst into the building with an AR-14 hidden under her trench coat and using her seven-year-old son as a human shield. She opened fire, first shooting an elderly man in the leg. Once the shots began to ring out, most everyone ran for cover, as is to be expected. But there were two men in particular who refused to run. One was a uniformed, off-duty HPD cop. The other was a man in a suit and tie working undercover as a TABC agent. Even though the bullets rang and flew around them, even though the shooter had an AR-15 and they only had nine millimeters, the shooter had a backpack full of ammo and they had one clip each, 15 rounds. The TABC agent in particular refused to back down. He knew, I think, he knew that he was the last line of defense between that woman and a sanctuary full of innocent Christians worshiping God at the Spanish service at Lakewood that afternoon. And I would normally want to lift up his name and his picture and stuff. It's just not time for that. It's way early for that still. Um, and out of respect for his family and his privacy and safety, I won't. But I will say... <clears throat> that with a complete disregard for his own safety and for his own life, he stood his ground. I don't know how many lives he saved, but one official close to the situation told me that if he had run, if he had fled, if he had fallen, it could have easily been dozens of lives taken that day, if not hundreds. I'm beyond grateful, like so many Houstonians this week, for the men and women who every day stand in the gap and refuse to back down and go to work every day, kiss their families goodbye, and just decide today, if needed, I will be the sacrifice. I will surrender for the sake of others. I'm just beyond grateful, as many of you are, even for our own security guards here on Sundays and throughout the week who keep us and the children of the school here safe. It's so courageous. It's so self-sacrificial. It's, it's divine. It's otherworldly. I saw one more example of it in the um, news um, 
sort of reporting that went on that afternoon live, like as the events was, were unfolding, um, there was a woman from the congregation, a Hispanic woman, maybe 20s or 30s, who had just left the building. She was still breathing pretty heavily, having run for her life. And, you know, some uh, local media person puts their camera in her face and asks her questions. And she handled them as best she could. And uh, I said, do you know anything about the shooter? And she said, no, the rumor is I'm hearing that she had mental illness, you know, or whatever. But if you ask me, the craziest thing that happened today, the craziest thing about today is believing that doing something like this would keep the people of God from gathering again. She said it won't. And her Hispanic accent, it will not. We'll be back next Sunday. And they are, as we speak, gathered again, in spite of the fear that could otherwise distract them. What is it that's so inspirational about stories like these? I think it's because we know we're made for this. We're made to be courageous. We're made to sacrifice ourselves for the sake of God, if it is and for the sake of others, if it is the, the will of God to lay down our lives for those around us, Jesus said there's no greater love than this. I think we know deep down we're made in the image of the God who surrendered himself. And so, of course, it's right to surrender ourselves. It's as right as right can be. It's the reason that we live to give ourselves away. That's what we find so inspirational and uplifting about stories like these. We don't want to let life pass us by without living with this same sort of abandon to self for the sake of God and the people he puts in our path. And so deep down, we know that's why we run. We run to leave it all on the track. Just days before, Paul's race came to an end. As his head lay on a guillotine in Rome, Paul, just days before that, wrote to his protege, Timothy, from his prison cell. And this is what he wrote, evoking that, that analogy of the good race one more time. He wrote, I am already being poured out like a drink offering. The time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. That's how I want to go out whether it's a guillotine or a deathbed or something in between. I want to go out like that. I think we all should want to go out like that. And so the, the pressing question remains, what is your mission? What's the, the mission of your life? What are you living for? And how do the steps that you're taking each day reflect the race you say you want to run? The goal of the race is Christ. Plain and simple, the goal of the race is to surrender to Christ, to live in Christ, to be with Christ, and to share Christ with the world around us until you've finished the race. I want to run my race in such a way, no matter how I go out, I'll be satisfied, like Paul, that I've kept the faith in spite of the pressures and the fear imposed by the world around me. I pray that one day we'll all run the race to that extent and a little bit like, a little bit like 
what happened to me earlier this month. One day you'll run that race. You'll die satisfied having kept the faith. And then somebody will hand you a trophy you did not earn or deserve, <laughs> like my golf trophy. And no one will ever be able to take it away from you, ever. It will be yours forever. So run the race set before you with ferocity and intention. Run it with Christ. And if you're looking for how to start it, stop overcomplicating it. Stop with the excuses. It's not that complicated. I sat for coffee with a guy this week who's got a million things going on and a million responsibilities, and he said, I think I'm just supposed to help on the parking team. I said, hey, run your race, buddy. Here's your vest, all right? Go serve on the parking team. That's a start. That's a step. That's a leg of the journey. Don't let the excuses stand in your way. There's opportunities to run that race and to keep the faith. I pray that you will, and me too. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you for this uh, reminder today, for the reminder of the, the race that we're running, the path that we're on, that it is not accidental. It is not, uh, it is not a coincidence that we are running the path we're running. You have charted a course before us. We are running a race that you've set before us, and so help us to run it intentionally, passionately, and to leave everything we have on the track, Lord. We pray that we would have the courage to keep the faith in all circumstances. And we thank you for those around us who are supporting, uplifting, and showing us and inspiring us with their courage. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.